and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and joining me for our first episode of the offseason is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Wolfond, we lasted, what, six days since we said we made it? We got to the end of another season. Six days since the Denver Nuggets hoisted the Larry O'Brien Trophy, and here we are reconvening for... For the real season. <laughs> yeah, for uh, as as friend of the show Trill would call it, slop season. Oh, yeah. Uh, with, with a, I mean, I'd call it a blockbuster. It was really only one, no, I'd call it a blockbuster. I'd call this a blockbuster trade, given two of the players and one of the teams especially that was involved. I would call this the first blockbuster of the offseason. And yeah, happened six days after the hoisting of the Larry O'Brien Trophy, a few days before the draft. The, the medal, the Tiffany Gold on the Larry OB was still hot and we have a blockbuster trade. Well, I don't understand. They make a new one every year. Yeah. It's not the Stanley cup, the Larry O'Brien trophy, the Vince Lombardi trophy. And I'm not sure about the commissioner's trophy for the world series, but I believe so. Yeah. Do they not make another one every single year? Like, isn't that the uniqueness of the Stanley cup that it's one trophy the whole time where the other three are actually remade every year because then the one that's given out stays with that team. Like, the the Raptors Larry O'Brien trophy is in the OVO so like their practice facility. We've I thought walked- those were just replicas that the teams got after they won. You're telling me there's a different trophy every single I, year? I am like pretty certain there is. That is weirdly disappointing to me. I don't know, maybe I am just hockey pilled and I'm buying into the the legend of the Stanley Cup as the best trophy in sports, yeah, but Dude, Larry O'Brien trophy is given permanently to the winning team and a new one is made every year similar to the Vince Lombardi trophy and the commissioner's trophy so the Stanley Cup is the only trophy out of the four major North American sports leagues that actually is like the authentic original one every year that's why you know the players get a few days with it and then it goes like eventually goes back I guess after they do like the ring night and stuff it goes back to the NHL all right well I suppose I'll allow it. I guess it's been happening all this time without yeah. my knowledge. So Re- real uh, random on a on on that note. It has nothing to do with the NBA, and we're kind of going off the rails here. But I believe it's the uh, yeah. I can't remember if it's the Claret Jug in golf, which is for the British Open, the Open Championship, or maybe the U.S. Open uh, trophy that they get. But it was on that uh, that Netflix um, golf show that was kind of like the golf version of Breakpoint, which is the tennis show, or of Drive to Survive, the F one show, and the winner of that tournament, like it is the same trophy of year, but unlike like, you know, the Stanley Cup where it's like they keep it for a few days, the winner actually gets to keep it for like the full year. And then it's just under the condition that they, they themselves bring the trophy back to the tournament the next year. So there was a cool episode in that golf show where like, I can't remember who had won it last year, shows up to then like the next year's tournament, literally with the trophy, like in the in the trophy case and like brings it to the commission or whatever being like, all right, here it is back. And like, has it ever been stolen or misplaced or anything like that? I'd be, it's a lot of responsibility to hold on to that thing for a year. Uh, Yeah. We're totally off the rails here already, but okay. To bring it back to the trade (laughs) that we're here to talk about, you said first blockbuster of the off season. I think it's fair to call it a blockbuster as well. Question for you. If you had to guess, will there be a bigger or, I guess, more consequential trade than this by the time the offseason's over? Or is this the biggest one we're going to see? Oh, man. 
I'm going to say yes, there will be, just because all the smoke out there and all the reports about how there are so many teams trying very hard to be active before the nitty-gritty of the new CBA and the potential penalties of it really start coming into effect. So I'm going to say, yeah, there will be at least one more consequential one. But I also say that with a little bit of kind of more like hope, you know, as as two people who rely on NBA content um, than I do, you know, out of full confidence. And I, and I, I mean, I even this week's unfiltered is going to be on the Beal trade. I know you already wrote about it from the Suns perspective for the app as well. But one of the things I mentioned in the script for this week's unfiltered is that like, I mean, we're going to get into it. I'm a little more down on it. I know you are more positive about it from the Suns perspective than I am. But one of the things I said in the script, even while being down on it, is that especially if Dame stays put, it we could end up where like Beal is the best player who changes teams this summer. Like that's very much a possibility. Well, and also from the Suns perspective, it doesn't matter if Dame stays put or not. They were never going to have the ammo to no, get No, no, I know that. I know that. So, I'm just saying they could come out of the offseason having added the best player that changed teams. That's all I meant. Yeah, but again, it's like you're just looking at what a team is capable of given their financial constraints, which in the Suns case, I mean, there weren't any. Like, they're going to be moving forward, but they felt comfortable pulling the trigger on this deal and putting themselves in a situation where they're pretty much guaranteed to be over the second apron. Uh, they're obviously comfortable with that, felt better about that than you know, being a team that was maybe butting up against that apron or staying below it, but potentially hard capping themselves by using the full mid-level exception uh, or even the taxpayer mid-level if they decided, you know, to hang on to Chris Paul or wave him and bring him back at a lower figure, like whatever the reporting uh, was out there about what they plan to do with CP. I guess I'm just looking at it and I'm thinking, like, let's talk about alternatives and opportunity costs. Like, whatever you want to say is the downside of the Suns kind of making this gamble, which it is a gamble because there is a lot of downside. But what was the alternative? And I'll, I'll just put it to you like this, Cash. Going into next season, the Suns have put themselves in this situation. They went, they put everything on the table to get KD, who was going to be 35. That was the That was the all-in move. So... They're doing everything they can to maximize their window with KD. Going into next season, do the Suns have a better chance of winning a championship with, let's say, Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, and somebody that they sign with the taxpayer MLE, or with Brad Beal and Jordan Goodwin? It's a hard question to answer because you don't know who that player with the MLE is, right? Like, it, does it end up being a really great fitting, I don't know, defensive wing or something? Like, I, it's okay. We can look at last year, right? So, yeah, at the higher end, you hit a home run and you get like Bruce Brown, right? At the tax MLE, right? And that player meaningfully boosts your championship odds, and because because he's the perfect fit and he's wildly underpaid for the production that he provides more likely you end up with somebody like John Wall or Joe Ingles who does not move the needle for you very much, if at all. Like, yeah, there's a chance that you could get a, an impact contributor, but the more likely outcome is that you get somebody who is like, uh, you know, an eighth or ninth man at best. It sounds like a cop-out answer, but I would I would honestly say that I'm not sure. And that to me is part of the downside with this Beal trade, that you didn't, 
you put yourself in this scenario they are now in where like you you know i mentioned the kd one was the all-in move but the beal deal is what will now put them in a situation like there is no avoiding the second ape and there's no avoiding the second ape for multiple years that will have ramifications like all this Putting yourself in that position isn't what I'm against. I'm against putting yourself in that position for a move that I don't think is as even close to a no-brainer as it should be when you're putting yourself in that position. Like to me, if you're going to make moves that put yourself in that position, the answer for me when you ask me that question of like what's better, the Beal deal or the alternative of a Chris Paul and a potential MLE guy, my answer should be it's obviously what they did. That's the easy answer. And and But... The fact they put themselves in this position and I'm not ready to say that's the easy answer is why I'm so squeamish about it. I am not convinced. Again, we can get into it. And I acknowledge that Bradley Beal has a gear that Chris Paul at this stage of his career is not capable of getting to consistently. I acknowledge that there are things Bradley Beal does with his skill set in terms of even self-creation, getting downhill. Chris Paul cannot do at this stage of his career. Having said all that, when you factor in durability, when you factor in the player Beal has looked like the last three years, when you factor in all of it, I can't even sit here today and tell you I am convinced that Bradley Beal is going to give the Suns more on-court value next season than 38-year-old Chris Paul would have. I mean, I think if he can just not get injured in the playoffs, and okay. I understand there are injury concerns with Beal okay. I, as well, but yes, Chris Paul gets hurt in the playoffs Every single year, and I know, yes, you can look at the injury history and say Beal is just as likely to be injured. I don't think that's more the case. likely. More likely, so. dude. I don't think so. Chris Paul, just because of their just because of their ages, and no. okay, I get that. And I, in normal cases, I would agree with you. But yes, Chris Paul's eight years older with way more miles on his body. Chris Paul played nine more games than him last year, and the last four years has averaged 14 more games per season. Chris Paul has played 66 games per season in the last four. Bradley Beal has played 52. It was 59 to 50 last year. Like, I, there I been, that, that there should be diminished, like on Chris Paul's side, it should continue to diminish at this stage yeah. of his career. But at some point, like we have a pretty big sample size here of even at this stage of their careers right now. At worst, it's like a wash from a durability standpoint. And there's actually evidence to suggest maybe for at least another year, Chris Paul can stay on the floor more than Bradley Beal can. I, I, st I still don't really buy that. Just And I think a lot of the time that Beal has missed over the last few years, you can probably chalk up to the fact that the Wizards have not been competitive and have shut him down probably earlier than they otherwise might have. I, I think it's just a little bit different. And if he's on a Suns team that is jockeying for like a top four seed. I don't know. Maybe they also would shut him down to like rest him up for the playoffs, but I still have like more faith in him making it through a postseason unscathed than Chris Paul at this point. But I like, I totally understand the reticence, right? Like he's again, he's missed 74 games over the last two years. And it's, it's really become an issue recently, right? Because up until, what, I guess 2019, so, 20 was when he started missing time. Before that, he was like an Iron Man. So, again, there was two stories. Like, the, his first, I think, four years, he was not an Iron Man. He was actually somewhat injury prone. And then he had a three-year stretch from 2016-17 to 2018-19, where he missed a grand total of five games over three mm. years. That was his like, okay, this guy is built to last, durable, high usage, in the lineup every night. That three-year window he had. But before that and after that, so for like eight of his 11 seasons, 
he's been somewhat I, I don't even know if you want to call it injury prone because I don't know how there I I feel like there haven't been too many like serious injuries but there's been a lot of like hamstring acting up he's out of the lineup for two weeks uh he had like this wrist thing he's out of the lineup for a week you know what I mean well the wrist thing wound up shutting him down a couple seasons ago yeah. and that was an example of like okay the team's not competitive there's no reason to rush him back in that season whereas like you know, and and that's also just a freak injury that you don't necessarily expect to to follow him or yeah. recur. So, I mean, the hamstring stuff is different. Like when it comes to soft tissue injuries, it's always a little bit more scary. But I, I don't know. Point being, to me, it is close to a no brainer that yes, you're better off for this year for the following year if you're trying to win a championship in this small window that you've given yourself with Kevin Durant still at like you know, I guess the tail end of his prime then yes, you would rather have Bradley Beal. And I'm not discounting the stuff that Chris Paul continues to bring to the table at his advanced age and with his waning physical abilities. Those are all super valuable. The playmaking, the defensive intuition, the ability to just like organize a team on both ends of the floor that Bradley Beal cannot do. I, I still think that what Beal brings in terms of just raw offensive firepower, scoring ability and especially the ability to get to the rim and I, I mentioned this and highlighted it in the piece that I wrote but like dude in the playoffs this past year the Suns were dead last among all playoff teams in three-point attempt rate and rim yeah, frequency it's, it's yeah it's in the and their their mid-range frequency was 56 percent yeah that was Number one, by such a wide margin, it's a joke. Number two was Sacramento at 38%. Like, that's how big the gulf was. And, you know, they, they still were the only team to take two games off of the eventual champs, right? And I know it took insane, probably outlier shooting for them to do that. But the point is, this is going to be a really, really good offensive team. And I think Beal is going to fit in pretty seamlessly to that. And I know... He also is a guy who takes a ton of mid-range shots. I think that that balance is going to start to tilt back toward him taking more threes with Phoenix because he's going to be playing off the ball more. And we've talked on the show a bunch about this, how like when you are uh, an offensive initiator, defenses are like locked into defending primary actions, right? They're less locked in just sort of by necessity to defending off-ball actions. And so it's just easier to find your way to three-point looks and have like a higher three-point attempt rate if more of what you're doing is like coming off a pin down, spotting up on the weak side. And when you're sort of running all those primary actions, as Beal has been doing for the last few years in Washington, the defense is going to lock in on that and do whatever they can to kind of nudge you into the middle of the floor and the in-between space. And so if you look at like Brad Beal's three-point attempt rate, in the years when he was playing next to like peak John Wall, he was up over 40% of his field goal attempts were threes. Last year, that was down to 23%. I think we'll start to see that nudge up. And then the rim frequency is the big one where like uh, over 30% of his shots were at the rim last year. Chris Paul was at 5% yep. cash and KD was at like 8%. His ability to get downhill and to finish at the rim because he was an, a, an amazing finisher at this stage of his career, just like really strong and balanced, has these like kind of explosive strides. Uh, I know we've talked, you know, with James Harden, right? The the kind of finishing step that he used to have where he could power through and around guys at the rim 
that he just doesn't have anymore. Like that's what Beal does. He's like a very explosive finisher for somebody who doesn't dunk that often. Uh, and that's, he finished 72% of his shots around the basket last year. Like yeah. that's just going to be, I think game changing for Phoenix in terms of balancing out their shot profile, having that downhill element. And I think his ability to be an off ball weapon is going to allow him to fit next to Booker and KD pretty seamlessly. And I think that offense is just going to sing. So that's my feeling about that at that end of the floor. And we can get into talking about the other end, which is going to be an issue for sure. But I like the offensive fit a lot. And I think this is about the the best move that Phoenix could have made, given the avenues that were available to them in terms of like raising their championship equity for next season. I think Bradley Beal was the best or most talented player they could have possibly acquired with their limited assets. I'm not convinced it was the move that improved their team the most or that they found the best fitting players they could possibly find with their limited assets. And I think that difference is what I'm still hung up on. And again, because like I'm with you on his ability to get to the rim and how that can balance out their shot profile. But by and large, the player he's become the last few years, and I acknowledge that a lot of it is because of the self-creation load he's had on him without enough offensive talent around him. And basically what I'm saying is the Suns better hope that that's all it is. That the only reason he's become the player he's become the last few years is because of that lack of supporting cast around him and the burden on his shoulders in terms of self-creation. Because if it's a little of that, but also a little bit of regression or not even regression just like age and starting to wear on his body and this is like slowly becoming the player he is then they're in trouble because well what do you mean by that in terms of like age or like how how do you feel like that's impacted him is is his shooting is his efficiency going down in terms of shooting just strictly oh I'm, I'm having to take tougher shots the last three years because I don't have enough talent around me and I'm self-creating or is it we see it sometimes with age. Maybe your legs aren't there anymore, whatever it is. Like we're talking about a guy who his first six seasons was a 39% three-point shooter. And his last four, or last five has been a 34.7% three-point shooter. We're talking about a guy, even from catch and shoot perspective, like if you're saying, you know, forget the self-created stuff, he'll get way more and cleaner catch and shoot opportunities, fine. This past season, uh, Bradley Beal was 44 of 110 on catch and shoot threes, 40%. Chris Paul was at 52%. On 88 attempts, a few like 22 less attempts. And again, I'll acknowledge probably some cleaner looks, but that's a big difference. Almost 53% versus 40% on catch and shoot threes. Like, I I guess I keep coming back to the fact is like, is it is all of this worth it? If you're getting Bradley Beal with the expectation of, well, Bradley Beal getting to the rim is going to balance out our shot profile. Well, because I'm not convinced the stuff he does other than that. That you're getting the same Bradley Beal you think you're getting. Um, I don't think it's just that. I I mean, him being a mid-range assassin, like that still matters. That's still really helpful, especially in a playoff setting. Like his ability to create his own shot is still super important. Um, And they've got three guys who can do it as good as anybody. Exactly. And I don't think you want to be as mid-range heavy as they were last year. But having all that mid-range shooting and all that self-creation, and also three guys who... You know, Booker's the best of them, in my opinion, by quite a large margin. But I think, you know, even KD and Beal, like, those guys can still play make for others at, you know, for, like, your tertiary and secondary creators. Like, that's, I would say, acceptable. Like, they have enough playmaking there 
between the three of them that just like the scoring juice and the off ball gravity and the way that like you could use those three guys in tandem because they are all, I think, really good off ball movers and off ball threats. I think you can use those three guys in harmony. You can stagger them in such a way where like you'll see them run. I don't know how similar their offense is going to look under Vogel to how it looked under Monty Williams, but like the stuff that they do with Booker, Beal and Booker are really similar in terms of the way that they like to kind of start possessions, which is like they'll start in the corner. Sometimes we'll get a pin down where it's like Chicago action, right? Like the pin down into the dribble handoff, or they'll just come up and do it without the initial screen. But like they want to run into their catches and then flow out from there. And that will flow into pick and roll stuff. And they'll make reads and like get into the middle of the floor, whether it's a mid-range jumper or a spray out pass. Very similar. And they can, if they want to run their offense kind of the same way, like pretty much interchangeable in terms of being able to run those plays say when Booker goes to the bench and then Beal takes over as like primary creator I think it just feels like a like a snug offensive fit to me in ways that go beyond just oh we have you know this limitation in terms of not being able to get to the basket and here's the guy who can do it but I do think also having that element like a guy who can really puncture a defense who can get them layups I think that's super important for a team that just hasn't hasn't been able to manufacture those kinds of buckets for the last couple of years now. So yeah, offensively, I actually have like very few concerns about even if there is a bit of redundancy, a bit of overlap, like there are some duplicative skills. It's rare where you can put three star shot creators together and there is no overlap and like no diminishing return whatsoever. Like you just don't see that. But I think for the most part, like there's a lot of additive stuff here where the three of them together are going to be pretty complimentary. And he does provide, a, even if he himself isn't the most durable guy, having three of these players does provide a measure of insurance in the event one of them gets hurt, which is just likely to happen, even if they weren't all injury prone. Like over the course of an 82 game season, you would think one of the three is going to have some time out. The fact that they do have three of them, I will acknowledge, it does bring some measure of insurance. Yeah. And I mean, like, if they're going to win a championship, I think they're going to need all three of them to be healthy for pretty much yeah. an entire playoff run anyway. So that insurance bit, I mean, I don't think you throw it out the window necessarily, but it's like, yeah, you, you kind of need them all to be healthy. But I, I've seen an argument, and, and I don't think it's crazy, where like what you actually need is just like more playable guys, more depth, right? I, I don't know where I land on that in terms of like, okay, if you'd gone another way, say like traded paul in a deal that like you brought back two rotation players or something and then you also had access to like the mle and like you're just building a deeper team around kd and booker ultimately i don't know what you'd prefer like do you do you prefer to have this other high volume creator scorer who can take that sort of pressure off or do you want to just have like more guys around you who can take that pressure off one way or another, there needs to be some effort taken to like reduce KD's workload, not have him playing 41, 42 minutes a game in the second round of the playoffs, not have him, you know, facing the kind of defensive att uh, attention and physicality and attrition that we've seen him take in the last couple postseasons, right? Where in that Celtics series and in that Denver series, he just did not look like himself because of the way that those opposing defenses were able to sort of key in on him and like be physical with him, prevent him from getting to his spots. 
I think I can I come down slightly on feeling like having Beal there is the better option in terms of lessening that load. Because you can put a bunch of role players around him, and yeah, maybe they can space the floor and like they're going to be defensively sound, so you can preserve him a little bit at that end. But if you don't have like the creation chops, like the ability to handle and make plays for themselves and others, then I don't think you're actually doing anything to really lessen that workload. And I feel like Beal actually can do that. Yeah, I guess my concern is on the defensive end. Given how the Suns and even the Nets like have relied on KD defensively, do they have the means to go get guys that can lessen the load on KD defensively now? And if not, like I don't know, are they really preserving him in any way by adding Beal? Like in terms of the question you asked about, you know, getting another like high volume great shot creator versus just having more playable guys around KD and Booker, I'm on team get more playable guys because if you had one star shot creator like KD or Booker and your options are we can get one more or get more playable guys, I'd say go get one more because you need a second one. But you and you already have two of those guys and your options are go get another one or get more playable guys and have real life NBA depth, I'd say go get the depth. Yeah, and I, I just, I guess I keep coming back to feeling like they didn't have a great way to acquire that depth anyway. I just don't know. Like, they were talking about just straight up waving Chris Paul, right? Like, it's not... I don't think teams were climbing all over themselves to give up two rotation players for Chris Paul. So, I, I think they did okay here. I actually think Goodwin's pretty good. Like, he's a he's a tough physical defender who... He pushes the pace. Like, he, he's actually a pretty creative passer. He cuts hard. Like, he he's going to be a rotation mainstay. That was a nice get. Like, you know, making sure that he was part of the trade. So... We're There's starting that. piece of the by 2022-23 all nobody team back in December. I I I really like Goodwin and especially on that deal. Like I do yeah. think that was a nice piece of business for them to snag him because I think he's sneakily solid and a legit rotation player who can really thrive on a good team. Right. So now they're in this position where I feel like their only other means of potentially, you know, let's say turning one rotation guy into two or more is Aiton. I just don't know at this point how they trade Aiton without like, cause they've got to replace what he gives them. And I know everybody is super down on Deandre Aiton right now. He did not have a particularly good showing in the playoffs this year, but they do need what he brings. They need his rim protection and his rebounding interior defense and, and rebounding are like issues for them as it is. And I know that's partly a Deandre Aiton problem, but that problem gets worse if he's not there and they're not getting anything back that replaces it. So I don't know. Is there a deal out there where they get, uh, you know, more of a mid-level type of center and then also a defensive wing? Like, does that deal exist? Cause I'm having a hard time finding it, you know, if it does like maybe, okay. Off the top of my head, you know, are the Knicks eager enough to get rid of RJ Barrett and his contract, for example, if they would do like Barrett and Hartenstein for Aiton. You know, something like that, where it's like, we just don't want to invest this much capital in the center position. We'd rather go with like Hartenstein, Landale, and then we'll play KD at the five a bunch of the time and we'll be fine with that. Some kind of construction like that is, I guess, what I'm imagining of a way that that could potentially work, but it's tough. Yeah, and I don't think the Knicks would be that interested in that. Even even though they may want to get off that Barrett contract, I, I'm not sure how much they want to take on the eight and one. Yeah, like, so this is the, this is like I, I don't think anybody around the league is super excited to sign up for 
you know, a, a maxed out DeAndre Ayton. Like yeah. I, and, and I will say, even though, like, <clears throat> I'm on record as saying Ayton does not punish mismatches inside as consistently as he should, but he is still an uber efficient big man inside on a team that desperately needs interior finishing and like finishing at the rim. So even though you can quibble with how often he does it or like how consistently he does it, the fact is he can do it and this is a team that needs it. So if you replace him, you know, with a guy who might be more eager to do it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to replace him with a guy who's as capable of doing it, you know, when it comes to that interior finishing and this team needs it at the rim. So they're in a yeah. bit of a tricky spot there with Aiden where it's like, they, he's the only guy they can move to get the depth pieces we're talking about and to get the more playable guys we're talking about that would really com- get them closer to completing this team. But he's also a guy who does a lot of the things they actually need, even if he doesn't necessarily do it at the level or the consistency they want him to do it. Yeah, I sort of just come away feeling like he is more valuable to the Suns than he is to any other team. And... I guess I just also come away feeling like it's a shame that it seems the bridge between him and the organization has been burned or at least damaged to the point that it's going to be difficult to repair. And I don't know, maybe it was just his relationship with Monty Williams. Maybe it was his relationship with Chris Paul. And now that both those guys are out the door, it's going to be easier to bring him back into the fold and get him to buy back in. But given how much friction there's obviously been between player and team, you don't want to be in a position where there's a guy that like you really need and you don't necessarily know if he's going to buy all the way in. So that is definitely precarious. But again, like these were all going to be problems for them no matter what. The depth was going to be hard to address. The the health stuff was going to be hard to address. The Aiton situation was going to be hard to address no matter what. So given all that, I don't think like you lay these issues at the feet of this trade they made. I, you know, is it going to make it harder to add, you know, via like free agency, the buyout market, trade market? Yes, of course. But I, I don't think that they were going to be in a, any better a spot if they would brought back Paul or if they'd waived him and like used the MLE. I just don't. So ultimately, I come away feeling like, I don't know if it was a good move, but it was kind of all that the Suns could do. I think it was necessary. I do think even if you don't want to say it moves the needle that much, I think it moves the needle slightly in the direction that they need it to go to try and maximize this window with KD. And so for that reason, I don't know, I'm just sitting here thinking like that's all that matters for them right now. They're chasing this this championship, the first championship in franchise history. And if they manage to to get there, you know, to, to scale that mountain, then this will all feel like it was worth it. And nobody's going to remember that Bradley Beal, you know, was making $50 million a year that he put them over that second apron. Uh, They're just going to talk about how the Suns won that first championship. And I I do think this moves them closer to accomplishing that goal, even though they're still a long way away from realizing it. I'm with you on the part of like, if they win even one, it's worth it. And I don't care how much Bradley Beal makes or that, you know, they ended up completely screwed in like 2028 if he helps them win a title it's worth it Mm -hmm. i'm just i don't know i'm just not sold on the fact that they have moved the needle in a way you would expect the team to move the needle when you acquire bradley beal and all the complications that do come with it 
I completely again. We don't even have to get in the weeds on this, but like the Heat would have faced a lot of the same issues. Like we talked about it last week. Like they are they're already in salary cap hell, but it's especially coming for them a year from now. Like as the second apron stuff really starts to take effect, and but I think because of the things they needed, the Heat getting Bradley Beal and taking on a lot of the same risks as the Suns did, I would have been a lot higher on because I I think that's a team where like he actually addresses so many of the things they need that I think it would have made a lot more sense. And I would have been able to see in my mind that needle move and be like, whoa, this is a very different and more complete and better team than the one that just got to the finals. Whereas Mm -hmm. the fit on Phoenix with some of the duplication with just, I'm just not, I don't see it the same way. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, And I don't know who's to say whether if that no trade clause didn't exist, whether Phoenix would have uh, been in the mix and and possibly pulled the trigger on this deal. Like, I don't know how much of this was Beal controlling the situation and how much of it was the Heat deciding that they didn't really want any part of this. But I, I definitely see your point in terms of like, yeah, he would have addressed needs that the Suns didn't necessarily have. But I still think... I still think it's a win for Phoenix at the end of the day. That's how I feel. So they've basically put themselves in a situation now where because they're going to be over that second apron, because their avenues to building out the roster are so limited, you know, functionally limited now to the second round pick that they have in this upcoming draft and veterans minimum contracts. Their their only means of like filling out the roster apart from that is like to just bring back the guys who were already there. And Craig, Lando. Yeah, so like Landale, Craig, Biombo, Damian Lee, those guys. Actually, I don't know about Damian Lee, if whether they have bird rights on him or not. I don't know. But definitely, I don't, they, there's a team option on Wainwright. I know that. Team option on Wainwright. So like those guys who they have bird rights on, it's like, I don't know, you just do whatever you feel like you need to do, I guess, to bring them back. And then I think they have to hope in some cases, like the guys they don't have bird rights on, like Josh Akogi is a great example. They don't have bird rights on him and he was making the minimum last year so they can give him just like an incremental raise on the minimum to try and bring him back and i really like josh koji like i think the the market might outbid them for for that and and he might be gone and that's i don't know that would be a sneakily big blow to them like they need as much perimeter defense as they can get uh they need to they need to try and bring back pretty much everybody that they can because it's going to be slim pickings when it comes to finding guys on the vet min. And I, I you know, again, the trade market isn't really going to be an option for them. And I, I just, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be tough to, to fill out the rest of the roster yeah. if they can't bring all these guys back. I will say too, um, and, and I don't know if you have anything else to add on the, on the Suns side of it, but I, maybe before we get to the Wizards, like one thing I do want to add is good for Bradley Beal. Because say what you want about, you know, whether his on-court impact matches his salary and no, it doesn't. And whether he's overpaid, whatever. But like, as I've said before, you are worth what a team will give you. And absolutely. He, he, you know, you can talk about how, and I did at the time, it was disingenuous of him at the time to talk about how like it wasn't necessarily the money and like this and that. And like, but good for him for staying in a place long enough at where he was comfortable, where his family was comfortable. And, you know, he played at a level where like they wanted to keep him around long enough. He wanted to stay. He got the maximum amount of money he could possibly get. Ended up making the all NBA team. Like got his super max. 
because he was there as long as he was, and he was in this very rare air in terms of like service time, one team, Supermax eligible, gets the no trade clause, the only one in the league. And then that allows him to, when he is actually finally ready to leave, and when the team is finally ready to move on from him, he ends up controlling the situation. So you can laugh at the Wizards, which I think we're going to do. You can you know, have your debate about the Suns, which we've already had. But kudos to Bradley Beal, because whatever you feel about him as a player or how genuine he was in terms of his commitment to watch it, like any of that stuff, none of it matters. Kudos to Bradley Beal for maximizing the tools at a player's disposal in what you know you can say is a player's league, but actually the players don't have the power people think they do. Like, yes, it's a player's league in terms of like the influence they can maybe have over there, like where they end up and whatever, but it is not at the end of the day, the owners still control the league and good for Bradley Beal to maximize the tools at his disposal and utilize them in a way where he has controlled and maximized his earnings potential and controlled where he plays in a way that few players, if any in the league have even ones better than him. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned it. It's the only active no trade clause in the league. So definitely kudos to him and uh, his agent who is Mark Bartlestein is his agent, right? Whose son is the CEO of the Phoenix Suns. Right. Um, I guess the one last point I want to make in terms of like the Suns defense, which we can both agree is going to be an issue and they need to bring back guys like a Kogi if they can bring him back, Craig, if they can bring him back. They're still going to be probably a small-ish team where like interior defense and rebounding are, are probably going to be points of concern. But I would say the one thing they have going for them, and this is very much contingent on Bradley Beal giving a shit on defense and like the sort of excuse that's been made for him, I feel like over the last few years about how terrible his defense has been is just he's carrying this huge offensive workload and he's playing for a team that isn't really going anywhere. And I do think to be fair, there have been points where early in the season when the Wizards have looked pretty frisky he's actually looked relatively good defensively and then that sort of falls off as the season goes along so we're definitely going to find out this year whether those excuses were genuine or not because he's not going to be carrying that kind of offensive workload and he is going to have something really meaningful to play for so it's contingent on him but I do think the one advantage they have is because Devin Booker is functionally going to be their point guard, they don't have to start a point guard sized guy. And I think in terms of just like having a little bit of integrity to your defensive shell, like not having just a super small dude that can be picked on is actually like a pretty big advantage. Like Devin Booker has become a good defender and you don't want him to be your like a one Right. perimeter stopper like you got to have somebody like a craig or an akogi next to him but like he's he will hold up defensively and for that to be or like for beal i guess to be your smallest player at any given time on the floor like that's that's sneakily i think a big advantage toward being competent defensively even if you have other issues in terms of like containing dribble penetration and stopping guys at the rim and getting rebounds etc <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I agree with you. And uh, despite that long list of limitations, at the end of the day, given how high powered their offense should be, you don't need to be much better than competent defensively. Yeah. Have we, do we have like proof of concept on that? Like, I know people have wanted to use the Nuggets as an example, but as we laid out on our last episode, like the Nuggets defense was really good in the playoffs. So, 
Yeah, but I'm saying if the Suns if the Suns have an average defense, mm-hmm. like if they find their way to like literally around average, slightly above average, and their offense is as good as you think it will be, do you think they can win a championship like that? Can, but yeah, obviously can is very different than but, will, and it's it's going to be a challenge, man. Like because look, they, I'll be honest with you. Well, if that's the case, though, you're looking at this roster and and the limited avenues for them to add to it. Yeah, can you see them having much better than a league average defense? Um, probably not. <laughs> but well, I think, but but I, but I don't really expect it to be that much worse than league average either. Like I think they can. You know, I think they'll, they'll be in the band between like 12th and 20th, something like that. But it's, okay. I mean, it's like, it, it depends what happens to it in the, like the Nuggets were 15th this year and then they were fourth in the playoffs, right? Like it's a, I feel like but there's then, a big sort of uh, spectrum there. But then that's, I think that's an interesting question though for you then, because if you're acknowledging that, then do you not think it was possible that a team that already had an extreme offensive ceiling could have made moves where they would have maintained that offensive ceiling but had a better chance of upping their defensive ceiling rather than getting Bradley Beal kind of going all in the other way and still as in your own admission and limiting themselves to like a league average defense? No, because I think that offensive ceiling was actually pretty precarious. It's like, yes, everybody's healthy. You know, everyone's sort of firing on all cylinders. The role players are chipping in. Then it can be an elite offense. But I think we saw like in that Denver series, right? Like how quickly and precipitously it could fall off if, you know, Katie's having to carry too much and he's not quite himself and CP's injured like he is every spring. And suddenly it's like basically up to Landry Shamit to go bananas from three-point range in order for their offense to maintain that elite level or for Booker to have like a 90% true shooting across three games. So, no, I think this this like raises the floor for their offense considerably. And maybe the ceiling doesn't move that much, but raising that floor still matters a lot to me. And so, yeah, look, I think they're, they're going to have a chance. They're going to be in the hunt. But yeah, they're, it's good. this is going to be a big roadblock to them actually winning a championship is like, do they have enough defensively? Uh, That's the biggest question I think facing them right now. And uh, we'll see what steps they take to try to address that. But we've already gone longer than we were supposed to. So can we do like five minutes on the wizard side of this? I'm good with that. I don't think there's that much to say. Like we know they waited too long and we're seeing what happens when you wait too long. This is a cautionary tale. They catered to Bradley Beal's every wish. And like you say, good for Bradley Beal. Squeezed everything that he could out of that that partnership and that situation. And I'm not saying like the, the stuff that he said about loving the city and the organization and like the loyalty talk. I'm not saying that that wasn't genuine, but it obviously served him very well. And from the wizard side of it, we knew the contract and the no trade was a mistake from the moment it happened. Like you can go back to 2019 when he had one year left on his deal and they extended him. And I thought that was a mistake at the time. And that honestly, like they could have traded him on that extension. Like he still would have had a ton of trade value. I think he was like 26 or 27 at the time. I think they could have gotten a haul, but they continued to cling to this idea of relevance and chasing low playoff seeds. And, you know, they make the Porzingis deal like they're, they just held on too long for, I don't know what, you know, chasing some kind of a pipe dream that wasn't much of a dream to begin with. And 
Now they are reaping what they sowed. You know, they they managed to somehow turn, what, a top 35 player in the league into a negative trade asset. Yeah. That's what they managed to do. After investing more than a decade in him. It's tough. Yeah. And, and now they're, they're starting this rebuild with, like, what exactly? I, I also love how it's like... Ted Leonsis has been their owner there, who I've clowned for years, whether it was his longtime empowering of Ernie Grunfeld or the way that they have committed to like being a <clears throat> seven to 10 seed and never seeing the bigger picture and being too short-sighted. I love how he's come to this realization though, literally at least a season too late because, and look, neither one of us are pro scouts here, but we can read like everyone else can read. And every credible scout reporter out there is saying this ne- these next two draft classes are some of the weaker ones in recent memory after we ju- we're about to have one that's one of the greatest in recent memory and you know we've had some couple good ones i'm not saying that that means there will be no stars that come out of the next two drafts but again strictly going by what the experts are saying the next two drafts stink and the wizards decided after a decade and a half or however how long they've been committed to this like being mid they now decide you know what Everyone else is right. We've had enough of this. We're going to hit the reset button. We're going to be bad. We're going to get rid of Beal, even though he's a negative asset. We're not going to get enough for him. We're going to apparently become a dumping ground for bad contracts in order to get picks for the next. But we're going to do it before arguably the two or allegedly the two weakest draft class in recent memory. Like if that isn't the most Wizards thing, I don't know what is. Like even when they finally get it and decide to pivot to a full-scale teardown and rebuild. They even do that in the wrong years. Right. And so you talk about that, the poor timing of it, the opportunity cost of not trading Beal at the peak of his value, the opportunity cost of not trading Porzingis and Kuzma last season. Mm -hmm. And now those guys are free agents and I don't know, like you bring them back, I guess, and hope they retain enough trade value that you can flip them later. Or you just let them walk for nothing because the goal is to just be as bad as you possibly can be ahead of this underwhelming draft. I don't know. I I, I think there's reason to trust Michael Winger, like, and that he has a vision and there's going to be a plan, and they know sort of what the next steps are going to be. But it's it's not an easy situation. Like this could be a long and painful rebuild because like, what do they have in terms of building blocks on the roster right now? They get zero first round picks for Beal. They get a bunch of seconds. They get whatever they can flip CP for, which is like, I don't know, in a best case scenario, maybe Terrence Mann. You know, they have Kispert, who I actually like, and I think is going to be a quality role player for a long time. But I don't know if he can be more than that. And like, who's he a role player for? Like, again, no building blocks, really. Same thing with Avdia, right? Like, I really like Avdia as a potential like tertiary offensive player who can be an ace defender. Like, that's a really valuable player, but not in a situation where you have no stars and no real avenues to getting one anytime soon. So, I don't know, man. It's like, yes, this was the right move. They had to do this. I'm glad they finally did move on this. But, like, I don't know. It's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, man. I hear you. Uh, no argument from me. You know how I feel about this. The one thing I'll add, and I think it's interesting, and I'm, I'm writing about the Wizards angle for the app and you can find that tomorrow. And a lot of it is kind of what we've already touched on and you know, how poor their timing was, how they waited too long, how it is a cautionary tale. But I would also add that I think 
it's also a reminder of how the Supermax, which was designed to help teams keep their stars, to to incentivize stars staying with their incumbent teams, how it can and has backfired in certain ways. Now, it has helped teams keep those players. And again, it's still on the team to find ways to maximize those players, whether it's trading them at the right time, whatever. But you end up in a situation where a Bradley Beal, who, great player, even, you know, not at his best now, but even when he was at his best, multiple-time All-Star, perennial All-Star for a few years, great player, but you end up in a situation where a Bradley Beal, who I don't think anyone, even the biggest Bradley Beal fan, would consider him, even at his best, you know, even like remotely close to a top 10 player, is getting this Supermax contract. I, I feel like when it was first created, it should have been a more exclusive thing. Like, instead of it being where, like, you can get it by making All-NBA, maybe it should have been, like, like because it's, like, MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, or is it All-NBA in two of the three years? Yeah. I feel like it could have been more exclusive and been, like, MVP or All-NBA first team. Like, if you have one of those guys you have this even extra level of a max that you can give them to keep them because those are the guys, like whether you're a small market friend, whatever it is, you can't lose those guys. Like you got to keep them. But I think they almost made it too inclusive. And I'm, I'm obviously sure like, you know, the players association, that's something they want. And then you have, there's give and take and negotiations. But I do feel like the super max being too inclusive ended up backfiring on some of these teams. I'm serious because like then the wizards ended up in a situation where, because Bradley Beal qualified for the Supermax, even if they didn't necessarily think he was worth that, because he knew he could get it from Washington, like he could kind of hold it against them being like, well, even though you can give me more money than another team below the Supermax, because you can give me the Supermax, if you don't give me that, I'm taking that as an FU, and then I'm going to give you the FU back and just walk for nothing and go sign a deal. I like these players can now hold that against the team. So I do think it ended up backfiring. Celtics are about to be in that same situation. Ex- and that's with exactly Brown, right? the example I'm citing in the piece as well. Yeah. Like again, good for the players for getting their money. I understand why the players association wanted that in there, but I think it for a lot of these teams that signed off on it thinking, Oh good. This is a good way for us to keep players. We might have other way otherwise lost. I think it's kind of backfired and put them in some really tough situations. And in the case of Beal, you know, everyone talks about that no trade clause. The reason he ended up the only player with it is because to even qualify for a no trade clause, a player has to be signing a new deal, having spent at least eight years in the NBA and having spent at least parts of four seasons of those eight years with the team he's signing with now. So it's very rare a player up, like up for a new deal is in that scenario. Like that's how Beal ended up in it. But anyway, just a lot of factors go. Again, I'm not excusing the Wizards and how they operate it. I'm just saying that the entire Supermax concept and especially how inclusive it is, yeah, I think has really come back to bite these teams. Well, you, because you said you understand why the players would lobby for that, but I was it not the owners who wanted that as a way to sort of retain their, yes, their that, team stars? Because for that, the players, like, yeah, the, if you're like a superstar player, you would lobby for it, but the players union is made up mostly of non-superstars and that doesn't actually benefit them at all in a league where there's a salary cap like you yeah. don't really want there to be so much stratification in terms of uh in terms of earnings i mean i can see it from the players perspective because i can see why 
like if there was going to be a Supermax, I can see why they wanted to be as inclusive as it as it is, right? Like you give more players the ability to qualify for it, yeah. As opposed to if you made it as exclusive as I was advocating for, then you have an even more like even more of this stratification between the two, right? Like that's what I meant when I said. I can understand why the players would want it if there was going to be a Supermax at all. But the point of it, as you mentioned, and as I noted, was that it was supposed to be to help teams keep their stars. And yeah, in that sense, you can say it's worked because their teams are keeping those guys, but it's actually backfired on them and put them in really tricky situations that I guess they didn't foresee or didn't think would be an issue. And it's, yeah, I, I just think it's an important element of this that I think, you know, people should talk about while also ripping the wizards <laughs> for sure uh okay should we leave all that there then yeah i think we can leave all that there i think we'll get like this was more of a special episode anyway for the trade yeah. so i think we can do like fan shout out maybe make or miss eventually as the off season gets going we can bring back but for now i think i don't think we need to talk about anything else today you good with no me? we have definitely spent enough time talking about this one trade <laughs> that we had planned to talk about for half an hour on this episode, but it wouldn't be a pound the rock episode if we didn't under promise and over deliver, or I guess depends on what your appetite is for more PTR content. But uh, we failed to meet our, our self-imposed time constraint yet again, a, a fulfilling conversation nonetheless, as always cash. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for jumping on and talking about this with me. Thank you to all of our listeners for continuing to ride with us. And we've, we've got, got the uh, timing of Ted Leonsis. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, excited to see what, what uh, the Wizards become in the future, man. Looking forward to this season where we're really going to find out what Avdia and Johnny Davis and Corey Kispert are made of because those guys are going to have every opportunity to prove that they can be long-term building blocks. But yeah, let's leave it there. We will talk to you guys again, I'm guessing Friday. Uh, yeah, I think that makes sense. After we uh, we can sort of react to whatever happens on draft night, which I, there's got to be some player movement and like transactions that are like crazy shit always goes down on draft night. And I'm sure in that sense, we'll have a lot to react to. So enjoy this. In the meantime, we'll be back to talk to y'all in a couple of days. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. 